Well, I'm going to preach today about when times are hard and everybody looks real happy. I, maybe, this, maybe this sermon isn't going to apply to anybody. I don't know. We're glad you're here. If you have your Bible, turn with me to John 14. We're going to look at the first 14 verses. John 14. When times are hard. Here we go. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father, and whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son." If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. You've probably heard the story of the man that was driving down the highway. And he saw a whole bunch of people gathered over in a certain place uh, by the, the great suspension bridge. He didn't know then, but as he was driving closer, he realized that somebody had climbed up to the very top of that bridge, and they were over close to the edge. It looked like they were probably going to jump. And, of course, whenever that happens, people begin to gather. And there were a whole bunch of people thinking, well, what's going to happen? And so here the crowd's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And this guy driving by, he decides when he sees everybody looking up, he's going to stop and find out what they're looking up for. So he pulled over, and here's this uh, well over 300-foot high suspension bridge, and they point to a guy standing on the very edge, and the man thinks, well, he doesn't need to do that. So he starts climbing up the bridge, and it takes him a while. He finally gets up to the very top, and he says, hey, buddy, let's talk this thing over. Things can't be that bad. And so they sit down, and they begin to talk. 
and they talk for about 15 minutes, and then they stand up and they both jump. <laughs> you know, that describes the situation that the disciples were in in chapter 13 of the book of John. Things simply could not have been any worse. They were terrible, just terrible. Jesus had just exposed the selfishness and the pride of the disciples. He had gotten down on his knees and washed their feet. Then Jesus had informed them that one of them was going to betray him. Well, that caused a lot of anxiety in the group, as you can imagine. Jesus then told them that he was going away and that they could not follow him where he was going. Then he said further that Simon Peter would deny him. And everybody looks at Simon Peter, of course. And then he said, all of this is happening now and in the near future. Well, the disciples knew that all the religious leaders were plotting together as to how they could kill Jesus. That was their goal, to kill Jesus. And all the disciples knew that. They knew all about it. And they were thinking, after they kill Jesus, wonder if they're going to come after us because we are his followers. Things were about as bad as they could possibly be for these disciples. They were deeply troubled. This word trouble in verse 1 means to be agitated, means to be perplexed. It means to be in a state of confusion. Times were hard for those disciples. They had a, a real heartache. All of these things all around them were going in the wrong direction. The world, they thought, was literally falling in on them. It was that kind of a situation that Jesus said to them, let not your heart be troubled. Now, that was just not a, a pious phrase or an empty cliche. You know, sometimes we do that. Sometimes something will go terribly wrong with a friend of ours and we'll go up to him and we'll say, uh, don't worry, everything's going to work out just great. And we know that that isn't how it's going. But we say it anyway. We have pious phrases uh, that we share. Jesus just didn't tell the disciples not to be distressed. He told them why. They shouldn't be distressed. Jesus reminded them of four things that God had given to them to help them, to buoy them up, to lift them up. Likewise, God has provided these same four things for us today. He's given them to us, every one of us in the house this morning. When times are hard, when it seems like our life is kind of crumbling in around us. When we're having a lot of difficulty in our life, these are the four things that we ought to claim, that we ought to reach out to and pull in so that they can be of substantial help to us in a difficult day. 
First of all, God has provided a person. The scripture says, you believe in God. Jesus says that in verse 1. You believe in God, believe also in me. Well, here's the first reason that you don't have to be troubled. Jesus says, you have me. I'm sure he wanted to say, for crying out loud. (laughs) You have me. Well, you can trust me to take care of you just like you have always trusted in God the Father. On another occasion, Jesus told his disciples, I will be with you always, even unto the end of the age. Let me tell you what that means. That means that wherever you are, wherever, if you're on the other side of the world, wherever you are as a Christian, whatever is happening to you, however bad your life might look at the moment, Jesus is right there with you and you can count on him. The greatest thing about Christianity is not that it provides a moral code for us to follow or a set of doctrines to believe. The greatest thing is that it provides a person with whom we can relate. That person, Jesus Christ, is sufficient for every need that we're going to have. Jesus was adjustable to any society. He was equally at ease among the wealthy, the scholarly, as well as the publicans and the sinners. He could move right in and start talking to the sinners. He didn't have any trouble at all relating to them. And he would help them and lead them if they would be led. And he would just help them all along the way. He was adaptable to any individual, to prominent saints like Nicodemus, who was a very powerful, very influential man. Jesus adapted to being friends with him, as well as pitiful sinners, like the woman that was at the well in Sychar. He went right up and began to relate to her, talk with her, help her. He was adequate to any situation, whether there was a storm that needed to be stilled or a fishing net that needed to be filled or a deranged person that needed to be healed. Read through the New Testament. You will see that Jesus never faced a situation where he didn't know what to do. Never happened. Every time he knew what to say, what to do, how to lead. Is your world falling in today? You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to say, me, me, that's me. You don't have to do that. Well, I've got really, really good news for you. And if somebody, maybe it's your neighbor Maybe it's somebody in the club or group or team that you're in, and it's very, very obvious that their life is falling apart. We've got some wonderful, wonderful things to say to people like that. Good news. You don't have to let life tear you apart. 
because God has provided a person, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is with you always and who is able to meet every need that you have. All right, secondly, in verse 2, Jesus says that he has prepared a place for us. In my Father's house are many mansions. Jesus is saying, now if the fact that I am with you is not enough, let me tell you this. I'm preparing for you a mansion in heaven, in glory. Well, notice what Jesus says about the accommodations he is making for us in heaven. He says there's going to be adequate room for everybody. I lived in an apartment one time that is about as big as that organ box right there. I lived there for about nine months. It was not the happiest time in my life. But I live there. You know, that I didn't have uh, enough money to live anywhere else. So that's where I live. And it was tough. The scripture says that this room, this home, this mansion that the Lord's building for you, it's going to be adequate for you. It's going to be more than adequate. Have you ever been traveling late at night? Maybe two of you, three of you, four of you, you're going down the road and you're thinking, you know, we don't have a reservation to stay anywhere and we're coming to a town, so we need to start kind of looking for a place that we're going to stay. And you go into the first place and they say, we're full. There's a big convention in town. And you think, oh, that's not good. And you go to the next place and they say, well, we're full. There's a big convention in town. So finally... You get to this run-down, kind of crummy place, and they say, we've got one room left. Would you like it? And you think, well, you know, got to to stay somewhere. We can't sleep in the car. So uh, you get out and go in. Well, you might know the trauma of inadequate accommodation. If you've lived in a small house and your family began to grow and then the house wasn't big enough, the accommodations were inadequate. Jesus says when you get to heaven, you're not going to have that problem. You're going to have adequate accommodations for everyone. In verse 3, Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. You know what that means? That right there in heaven, right there in heaven, there is a mansion. And on the front door of that mansion is your name. Your name. It is a place that has been prepared for you. Heaven is going to be like one big happy family. There's no HOAs in heaven. None of them. I'm getting some amens on that. Jesus was a carpenter, as you know. He did great work, great work. He didn't build anything shoddy, anything bad. Now, your mansion is going to be nice. 
My wife is hoping that there's going to be granite all through it. (laughs) She really likes granite. Uh, You might uh, not be ready to go right now. Well, you don't have to go now. But I want you to know that when the time comes, when your race is run here on earth, when your life on earth is done, Jesus has a mansion for you in glory, right in heaven. Third, there is this provision. Jesus has provided for you a pathway to heaven. Jesus has prepared a place for us in heaven, but we don't know how to get there. How do we get there? That's the question that Thomas asked in verse 5 of our text this morning. Thomas says, we don't know how to get there. How do we get there? Well, how can you be assured of going To heaven. If you died today and you woke up at the gates to heaven, St. Peter's sitting there, and he asked you this question Why should I let you into heaven? What would your answer be? Now, thousands of different answers have been given to that question. Thousands. People come up with all kinds of ideas as to what to say. One of the most ingenious came from a little boy named Jimmy. His mother was just exasperated by his mischief. He was always doing the wrong thing. He was always in the wrong place. He was always saying the wrong thing. He was uh, a little uh, Martian, it seemed like that had kind of come in unexpectedly. He was terrible, just a terrible, terrible little boy. Finally, the mother, she was so worn down by him, she said, how do you ever expect to get into heaven? The boy thought for a minute, and then he said, well, I'm just going to run in and run out over and over again. And every time I go in, I'm going to slam the door. And every time I come out, I'm going to slam the door. And after a while, St. Peter is going to say, Jimmy, either come in or stay out. (laughs) And when he says that, I'm going to go in. (laughs) Now, as amusing as that answer might be, that's not the way to get into heaven. That isn't going to work. Neither will you be able to enter because of your works or your morality or your kindness or your religiosity. None of those things are going to do it. Jesus says to his disciples in verse 6, I am the way. That's what he's saying. I'm the way. I is emphatic. What it means is I and no other I am always the way. Then just in case there's any misunderstanding whatsoever, Jesus adds this phrase. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
Now, he's not meaning to be judgmental. He's meaning to be factual. You want him to answer your question, and he answers it. He's not narrow. He's just factual. That's the message of the New Testament. We see it in John 3.36. We see it in John 5.40. We see it in John 8.24. We see it in Acts 4.12. And we see it in our text. In every instance, it's the same. There is no other way for you to go to heaven, for you to be assured of that mansion and glory, is except you turn your life over to Christ and acknowledge him as your Lord and your Savior. Now, it doesn't really matter what you have heard. You know, a lot of people have all kinds of weird ideas about going to heaven. You know what they think? They think what the lady next door said over the fence. Well, that isn't going to cut it. Or they think what they read on the Internet will do. Or they think what somebody said on Facebook that that would do. Or they think some magazine that they bought on the stand that had an article by somebody, that what they said, well, that'll do. Well, no, it won't do. That won't do. Uh, well, you know, you, you think to yourself, well, you know, this is what I think. Well, it doesn't matter what you think. You know, it's not based on what you think. Do you think you think the same thing that God thinks? Absolutely not. You know, there are all kinds of religions. There's all kinds of wacko groups all over. I lived in Tempe, Arizona for four years, and there was a group of people that lived out on the desert in Arizona. And they would come to town every once in a while, and they were in robes. They had these robes on. And they called themselves the Robies. And they smelled awful, <laughs> just unbelievably awful, the robies. I'm sure they thought what they, was doing, they were doing was right, but it wasn't. It didn't measure up to what Jesus is saying in John 14. It's not, it's not right. Well, the Bible says the only way to go to heaven, the only pathway to heaven is through Jesus, not through laying around out in the desert. Now, if you've never accepted him as your Lord, as your Savior, if you've never started walking in his way, the sooner you do that is the better. And that's what you want to do. Now, this is the promise that I want you to hear. This is the assurance that Jesus was giving to his disciples when they thought everything was terrible. If you have identified your life with Christ, then you have found the way and the relationship with God that is permanent, that neither life nor death nor angels nor principalities nor custom nor any other thing, nor any other thing, can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. When you found Jesus, you found the way. 
There's nothing, there's nobody that can ever take that away from you. You know, a lot of things that we have in life, people take away from us. They just take it away from us. When I was growing up, I had some blocks, and I loved those blocks. And I would go in my room, and I'd play with those blocks, and I'd build little buildings, little houses. I love those blocks. One day, my mother and father came in, and they said, we're putting your blocks up. And I cried, and I said, why are you doing that? They said, because you're too old to play with blocks. We're putting your blocks up. And they did. I never saw those blocks again. Now, there's one more provision that Jesus mentioned. God gives us this Right now, it's the power of prayer. Jesus says in verse 13, And whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. Now that sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Whatever we ask in his name, he will do. And then he repeats it in verse 14. He says in verse 13, repeats it in verse 14. What does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? It means more than tacking on a closing sentence to your prayer. It means more than that. To pray in Jesus' name means that our prayer must be consistent with his character. The character that he demonstrated during the three and a half years of his public ministry. To ask in his name means to ask within his will and his purpose upon the basis of his work as our Redeemer. To pray in Jesus' name then reflects a unity of mind, motive, and mission. Those three things. We have to line those up with Jesus. When we dare to pray like that, Jesus said, our prayers will be answered. They're going to be answered. I'm not going to argue with anybody about the power of prayer. I've had people come up after I preach on something like this, and they'll start arguing about that. I'm not going to argue with anybody about that. I'm not going to debate folks about unanswered prayers in your life. I've tried to lay out the qualifications that you need to have if the Lord's going to answer your prayers. I just want to tell you what I found in God's Word. You know, that's what we go by. That's what we go by. We go by God's word. And it says that we need to do the things that I've just mentioned. You know, sometimes we can study some of God's saints. There's been a lot of books written about the saints of God down through the years, and we can learn a whole lot. And when we get to the part in the book where it talks about prayer, you'll be amazed at how they align themselves with the factors that I've just mentioned. Out of my own experience, I know that God answers prayers. If you want power in your Christian life, you've got to pray. If you want spiritual growth in your Christian life, you've got to pray. If you want to produce spiritual fruit for God in your life, you've got to pray. If you want to discover the deep mysteries of God in your Christian life, You have got to pray. 
If you want to make it through when your world is falling in and everything is going wrong, you've got to pray. Let me sum it up. God provides a person who is with you always, who is adequate to meet every need that you have. God provides a place which is prepared for you, which will provide wonderful and personal accommodations throughout all eternity. It's not just for a week or a month. It's for all eternity. God provides a pathway through Christ that will lead you into an eternal kind of life that will begin when you trust in Christ and never end. It's eternal. God provides you a power, the power of prayer. That's why Jesus can say to each of us, even though it might seem like our life is just tumbling in, Jesus can say to each one of us, let not your heart be troubled. The Lord's provision proves his love for each one of us. The little girl was playing in the dining room. She was not supposed to play in the dining room. Her parents had told her hundreds of times, don't play in the dining room. But she was playing in the dining room. And she kind of messed up a little bit, and she knocked over the family heirloom, the most honored and coveted thing in the house. She knocked over this vase, and it hit the floor, and it shattered into a thousand parts. Well, all of a sudden, uh, she realized what she had done, how bad it was. I mean, this was the prime thing that this family had. They were real proud of it. And so she started crying. And she cried just as long, as hard as she could. And then she started thinking about, what are they going to do to me? And she started crying about that. Well, her mother was at the far end of the big house, and she had heard the crash, and she came to the dining room just as quickly as she could. When she got there and came around the corner into the room, the daughter was so surprised to see on her face not anger but relief. And the mother came over to her and gathered her up in her arms and said to her, I was so worried that you were hurt. Well, looking back on that event, that event in her life uh, years before, the little girl said, I discovered that day that I was the real family treasure. Jesus has done so much of each for each of us. He died on the cross for us. He has prepared a mansion for us in glory. He forgives you when you pray and you ask for forgiveness. But more than all of that, he looks upon you as his treasure. Today, if you're in the house, you've never trusted in Christ as your Lord. You've never 
been actively involved in his family, if you need a church home, if the Lord could lead you today, he'd lead you to make those decisions. If your heart is open to him, he would want you to trust in Christ as your Savior. He'd want you to join his church. He'd want you to be active in service of Almighty God. We're going to have a time of invitation. I'm going to stand right down here. If the Lord is leading you, if you sense a tugging at your heart, just slip out and slip forward and take a stand today for Jesus. Let's stand as we sing.